So the denominations of Christianity, to some that sounds like a good time to take a nap. Here's what we're really doing. We all have our own spiritual lives, our own spiritual experiences, our journeys, our stories. We have our questions, we have our struggles. Whatever that looks like for you, there are some things we have in common, but of course it's all, it's unique. And there are times when we feel alone. Or we feel like we're just stuck. And we can't get to that next stage like we talked about in the last series with the Brian McLaren book. What do I do? Am I alone? Am I the first person to ever think these things? Am I the first person to ever experience these things? And then we can learn about the people who have gone on before us. Our spiritual ancestors, the family tree, people who wanted to follow Jesus over the centuries. And there are times when we learn something that we didn't know before. And all of the sudden we have this, it's like the mind-blown meme, And I realized these people, these particular people thought what I thought. They had the same questions I have. They they had the same struggles I have. And all of a sudden, a new door is opened that I'm not alone. And there are other people that have experienced this maybe a long time ago in a very different place. And I can learn from them. And I'm a part of the family tree. I'm not just weird. But I, I I can find family and I can learn from them, and I can grow. And so that's what we're doing in this series. And I hope that so far, in the, in, the, in the few weeks, that there's been something, some nugget that you could grab onto, some aha moment, some light bulb. Is there anything that, that has stuck out to you over the past three weeks? Any, how many of you would say something has spoken to me out of the family tree? 12% perhaps? Raise the hand, no. And so if, if not, oh, that's my prayer. That as we go through this series, you would hear something, oh, that's me. And maybe that'll happen today. So here's where we've been and where we're headed. So we talked about Catholics, over half of all Christians the first week, then Orthodox Christians, then Anglicans and Methodists last week, then Lutherans and Presbyterians today, Baptists, Anabaptists, and Pentecostals next week, and then non-denominational Christians, including churches like the Well uh, on May 29th. And here's a graph we've shown every week, a, a, a pie chart of all of the Christians in the world, over 2 billion people who profess faith in Jesus. You see that, again, the Catholic Church is the largest body of Christians in the world. If Pentecostals were one denomination, they would be second. Then you have the Orthodox. Then you have Baptist groups. Then the Green, Anglican, Teal, Aqua, we'll call it Methodist. And then you see Presbyterians and Lutherans there. A little smaller slices of the pie, but you can see how the breakdown works. And every week, what we're doing is giving you three things. History and facts about this denomination, this group of our 
this branch of our family tree, and then the major tenets of their faith, what they believe. And then third, what can we learn from them? How can we grow? We're not interested in criticizing other groups. Of course we could. If you're not a Presbyterian, then you're, of course you're going to disagree with Presbyterians. And so we, we could just lob verbal bombs all day long, but what's the point? A real education is, how could I learn? How could I grow? How could I be more connected to the family tree? We don't need more division in our world. Perhaps we need to understand each other a little bit better. And I can ask, how can I grow in my spiritual life from learning about branches of the family tree who are different than me? So we're going to speed through some facts in history about Lutherans and Presbyterians. Of course, we're not doing justice to them. This is nowhere near exhaustive. Uh, but the Lutheran Church has about 70 million members worldwide. The Presbyterian Church has about 75 million members. There are different denominations within Lutherans and Presbyterians, conservative and, and progressive. And Jesus lived, died, and, and rose 2,000 years ago. And then 1,000 years after that, there was a split between uh, what became Catholics and the Orthodox Church. That's called the Great Schism in 1054 AD. And then about 500 years later, or 500 years ago, there was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, and you see how all of these other denominations, other than Orthodox, branched off of the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation. And there you see Presbyterians and Lutherans that began in the Protestant Reformation. It was a major argument in God's family that took place about 500 years ago. And, and, and there were people who protested the Catholic Church, so they became known as Protestants, Protestants. And uh, the time around the Reformation, 1500, was a time of, of revolutionary cultural change in Europe. Europe was in the middle of the Renaissance, a time in which the Greek classics had been rediscovered, and in Greek philosophy, science was taking hold as a way of understanding reality. How do we know what we know? How do we know what's true? So the scientific method was being developed at that time, and, and there were new uh, worlds being, quote-unquote, discovered. In 1492, Christopher Columbus uh, sailed the ocean blue and discovered, quote-unquote, discovered new worlds. Of course, there were people who were already here, but it was a time of great change. There was a feudal system. In the, in the Middle Ages, that was coming to an end as all these little kings began to consolidate into larger and larger people groups, territories that would later become nations. And so you see that just the seeds of what would later become nationalism. So there was local pride in these growing groups of people who identified with each other and, and saw, oh, you're in our group. These people are out, but we're in the in group. And, and there was pride in the languages of the people. So the Catholic Church elevated Latin during the Mass. And, but there were Germans, for example, who wanted to read and write in German and worship in German because that's our language. And so you see how it was just a time of great cultural change. And then there were new technological inventions. The most influential was the printing press. So for the first time in history, a document could be mass-produced quickly Information could be shared far faster than it could ever be shared in the history of humanity. And so there were new ideas, new information that, that could just sweep across continents. Propaganda, good ideas, advertisements, 
new views, new theological views, political views, etc., could be spread across vast uh, land areas quickly. There was a widening gap between the rich and the poor. For example, in Germany, where Lutheranism took hold, uh, the German peasants were close to a revolt. They slaved away for wealthy landowners, and they increasingly realized that the church was not on the side of the poor. In other words, the system is rigged against me. And there was growing discontent. And at this time, in the Catholic Church, there had been corruption so that you know, wealthy people became pope, and, and influential politics played a role in the church. Does that sound familiar at all? And it was a time of upheaval, and there was clear corruption. Uh, the clearest example was probably what was called the sale of indulgences to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So an indulgence is the removal of a punishment for sin by the church. So if somebody dies and they go to purgatory, the church can declare, oh, now their, their sins are absolved, they can get out of purgatory. And there was a brilliant marketer within the Catholic Church named Johann Tetzel, and he was charged with raising funds in Germany to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and he sold indul- indulgences. For a price, you could pay the church to release your loved one from purgatory. And it's possible that he came up with the first advertising slogan. And it went like this. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That's like the Ron Popeil food dehydrator infomercial. <laughs> Remember the spray? You could, on a bald spot, you could spray stuff, whatever that stuff is on the bald spot, and it would look like hair, apparently. And so this is like an early infomercial where the church and money and politics and corruption, it's all intertwined, and it's just raising money. And the Protestant reformers were disgusted by this. Now, of course, we're not bashing Catholics. We're all Catholics bad and corrupt. No, of course not. It's just we know how systems can become corrupt. We know that, don't we, in the United States? Oh, it's not hard for us to understand. And the reformers were disgusted by this. And so quickly, we're going to cover Martin Luther, John Knox, and John Calvin, who were leaders in the Protestant reformers. So Martin Luther was a German monk and theology professor who just was fed up with what he was experiencing in Germany. And so in 1517, he posted the 95 Theses statements on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And he protested what he saw as corruption within the church. And and this new technology called the printing press He proliferated his ideas all over Germany. He mass-produced this protest all over Europe in the languages of the people. He was crude. He used colorful language. He was entertaining. He was charismatic, a master communicator. And other leaders on different parts of the continent uh, picked up these ideas. And it spread like wildfire with all of the cultural change. Europe was like was like you know, a dry piece of, of, of brush out in the desert, and, and Luther was the match. And all of the sudden, society changed. And for the next 125 years, there was a revolution in religion and war and politics in Europe. Ideas that would later influence what became America were born here in the Protestant Reformation. The Lutheran Church, of course, is named after Martin Luther. It grew in Germany and and now is worldwide. In Scotland, there was a preacher named John Knox at a time when Scotland was Catholic, and he was influenced by the ideas of the Reformation. 
And so uh, John Knox led the Protestant Reformation in Scotland. And when you have an authority who's the Pope and you, you dismiss that authority, now what's the authority? And so uh, the Scottish church became known as Presbyterians because they had uh, presbyters who were elders or leaders in each church. And then they would join together in conferences or councils, regional councils called presbyteries that united those, con- those congregations. And so it's called a Presbyterian form of government. So if you have a church that's governed by a form of elders like this one, that comes from Presbyterians. And then while Luther is credited as the person who started the Reformation, the most influential theologian in the Reformation was John Calvin. He galvanized Reformation theology, pulled together Lutherans and, and, and uh, Presbyterians and other Reformed groups as much as possible. And he was a major influence on John Knox. And he was born in France in 1509, educated in law and the humanities. He was a lawyer. He wrote um, a massive multi-volume theological uh, work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And he started a school in Geneva, Switzerland. And where he eventually created a a city-state theocracy in Geneva. There were executions. There were imprisonments for believing the wrong things about religion. But it was was this this boiling cauldron of a time of of upheaval and and zeal. and, And things got out of hand on both sides. In early Calvinist churches, there was no art other than music. Remember... Catholics will have icons to help them worship. And, and so Calvin was literally an iconoclast, tore down the icons. No art, no physical beauty. We want, the, we want the rooms to be as plain as possible. And so art was downplayed. And, and then he's most famous probably for what's called the doctrine of predestination. I mean, if you know, have, have you heard the word predestination? And so what predestination is, is that it's the belief that God chooses and chose before the foundation of the world who would be saved. And if people are not chosen by God, then they're not saved. And so the people who were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, before they ever were born, they're called the elect. And those are the people who are in. Those are the people who will go to heaven. Those are the people who are, who are saved in a relationship with Jesus. And they're, they're predestined to be the elect or they're not predestined to be the elect. And of course, that's controversial to this day. And, and the Puritans who sailed to New England brought Calvinism to America. And Calvinists were never sure if they were among the elect or not. You, you, you hoped you were, of course, but one of the signs that you were among the elect was material prosperity. If you do well in life, that's a sign of God's blessing. Hashtag blessed. And maybe I'm one of the elect. If I work really hard and I prosper and I just keep my nose to the grindstone and I just clang and bang and work really hard and, and that became known, if, see if you can finish this, the Protestant work ethic. And it comes from Calvinism, this idea that material blessing is a, material wealth is a sign of God's blessing and maybe a sign that I'm among the elected. You see how that's influenced America. That's why you have less vacation than, than other parts of the world. And, and so... But there were good things too, of course. We're not demonizing. We're just acknowledging how influential this was and and how our lives are affected by these things. This breakup in in the family, this this split that, that, that spiraled out of control. And we still live in the effects of that 500 
years later. Okay, so the Reformation was a split in the family. So it was either last week or the week before this happened, and it's a really cute story that took place in Tennessee. There was a couple named Julie and Jimmy Johnson, and and they live in Tennessee, and, and they have three dogs. And one night they went to bed, and they're used to their dogs crawling in, into bed with them. And, and so Julie woke up in the middle of the night, and, and she turned over, and she saw a dog laying next to her in the bed. And she said, well, wait a second. That's not our dog. And so I think we, I, we have a picture here. This dog, they eventually learned her name is Nala. And Nala had gone missing from her home. Later they found out about two miles away. Her family was taking her out for a walk, and she got away from her family, and there was a thunderstorm, and, and Julie and Jimmy said, we must have left the back door cracked or something, and somehow she got into the house, and she crawled into bed with us. Think about that. world's a dangerous place for a, a dog if a dog gets lost. We won't go into all that, but you know, we're, we're, we're glad. She found a way into the house, and, and a house that she'd never been to before. A family she didn't know. And she crawled into bed with this couple. And then and Julie and Jimmy invited Nala's moms to come over. And they took a picture together here. And when they were reunited with Nala, they put Nala's picture on Facebook and said, we found a dog. I think she, her collar had uh, come off. And so they were reunited through Facebook. And, um, and then they, they've become friends. And they took this picture together. When I, when I, isn't that a great story, by the way? When I heard that story, I thought, everybody needs a family. Nala, wandering around in a thunderstorm, lost, away from her family, and she finds a way into a house. And that may have saved her life. And crawled into bed with these humans. And, and the, the, the people said, like, they, they consulted, like, a dog expert. Like, she probably smelled the other dogs and thought, at least I can belong here. And she crawled into bed with this family where she felt safe. Everybody needs a family. And, and that's true in many ways, of course, whether it's a biological family or kind of an adopted family or a spiritual family or just friends, to know that we're not alone in life. And it's also a reminder of how, how stressful and exhaust, exhausting and destructive it can be when we feel broken relationships. It's a marriage, or it's just a, a, a date, not just, it's a dating breakup, or, or it's siblings, other family members, or a person who feels lonely, like they don't have a family, or people, a person who feels spiritually lonely, like they don't have a family. And there are times when family disagreements spiral out of control, when things get worse than they should have, or they could have. Maybe you've experienced this, there are times when misunderstandings don't get clarified and we all have our perceptions and we all expect other people to, to read our minds, whether we admit that or not. We all just kind of assume that other people are going to know how we're thinking and, and we, we just think that, oh, they should know how I perceive this. And, and, then, and then it's not clarified. Instead of talking to the person, we go to somebody else. We go to friends. And, and of course, who are our friends going to side with? Right? Friends are biased. I read an article in the past, uh, entitled, Why Your Friends Will Talk You Into a Divorce. Because you share things with your friends, and of course, they're your friends. They, they only hear one side, and they want to support you. 
And so they, they say things that support you. And then you're like, yeah, that's right. And then you, you say something else that's negative about some other person. It could be spouse, it could be friend, it could be family member, coworker, this work poli- office politics. And they're like, yeah, that's right. And then they say this, and, and eventually back and forth, and it's this negative feedback loop to where the, 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 the chasm has grown so wide in this conflict that it's spiraled out of control. Have you ever had a friend who was sharing with you something they didn't like about somebody else? Could be marriage, could be work, whatever. And, and you know, eventually, a, a few months or a few week, or, you know, weeks or months in, your, your idea of this person they're talking about, man, they're just evil. Have you ever experienced this? Where that is, that is a terrible person they're talking about. I can't believe this, that somebody could be this bad. And then you meet that person. Have you ever had that experience? Where this person is just like the spawn of Satan, based on, you know, you're sharing with this friend who's venting about whatever's happening at work or marriage or whatever it is. And then you meet that person, you think, you know what? They kind of seem like a nice person. They didn't seem to, you know, they didn't seem to be the evil spawn of Satan. And you start to wonder, have I gotten the full story here? And the answer is no. Of course, we, know we get one side, and, and there, it's been said there are three sides to every story. There's this person's, this person's, and then there's the truth. And, and so that's how relationships can spiral out of control, whatever it is. And of course, the breakdown occurs when we don't go directly to that person, the person we have the conflict with. Like Jesus says to when you have something against somebody, just go to them and talk to them in the Gospel of Matthew. Or if you think somebody has something against you, go to them. And, and, and you know, it seems like there's weirdness between us. Maybe we could just talk. Whenever we don't do that, that's the, that's, unless there's a situation of abuse. If somebody's beating you, berating you, no, that's not going to work. You've got to get out to a safe place. But other than that, the solution is always to go to that person. But we, if we don't do that, we go to our friends, we build alliances, we isolate, smear campaigns, it's on our side, we poison the well, we've got the truth, we're the victims, right? we're the heroes. That's how all relationships spiral out of control. And then you get to this place where the chasm is so wide, it's, it doesn't even reflect reality. That's what happened in the Protestant Reformation. And there was guilt on both sides. But I'm not a fan of both sides-ism. But it's just that in, in the Reformation, there was. There, there were issues on both sides. Neither side was perfect. And it went farther than it needed to. I'm a Protestant. I'll remain that way. It's just that we're still dealing with that bad of a breakup. And it's just an opportunity to think about our own relationships as well. Am I seeing this clearly? How am I contributing? Am I going to the person that I have a conflict with? If I can. Or am I, you know, like in the Reformation, just building alliances and spreading my ideas, my side, and then it just gets wider. The rift just grows and grows and grows and grows beyond all reality. Well, that's what happened in the reservation. So quickly, here are some distinctives of Lutherans and Presbyterians. And what I'm going to do here, because... um, I'm just going to talk about really one theological thing that Lutherans and Presbyterians share in common because there just isn't time to go into the rest of it. And it's not fair. It's not exhaustive by any means. But they're called the five solas. And, and this is, these are hallmarks of the Protestant Reformation. And they're a reaction against Protestants' perception of the Catholic Church. Okay? 
So once again, their, their reactions against, based in Protestants' perception of the Catholic Church. So sola scriptura, it's Latin, means scripture alone. So the Protestant belief is the, the Bible is our highest authority instead of who? The Pope. So if the Pope was the authority, now we're, we're leaving that church, what's our authority? It's the Bible now. Like we talk about so often here, some of us come from traditions where, where the Bible is, I mean, there are times where you're like, is the Bible above God? In, in my tradition, like, is the Bible like even more important than Jesus? Because the Bible is elevated. There's actually a criticism of Protestants that they made the Bible the paper pope. Back when Bibles were made of paper. If you, if, not iPads and iPhones, if you remember those days. And so they kind of traded one authority for another, and there are good things. Leadership's important. And then democratic interpretation, having access to the Bible, that's important. And yet the chasm was so wide that sometimes you just exchange one, one system that doesn't work for another system that doesn't work. So you have sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola fide, faith alone. This is, this is the hallmark doctrine of the Protestant Reformation, justification by faith, that we're saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ, not by works. Okay, So there's the perception in the Catholic Church that, okay, that I'm saved by Jesus, but then I can perform good works that do contribute to my salvation. Catholics believe in justification by faith. But there is this emphasis on good works, this, this partnership in a sense. And Protestants said, no, that, that looks like we're earning our salvation. We're saved by, by faith alone in Jesus. And there are verses in Romans that, I mean, we're, you're, you are saved by faith. You are justified by your faith. We'll look at those here in a second. And then coupled with that is sola gratia, grace alone. We're saved by the grace of God alone, not by our own merit. Our salvation is an act of grace. Now watch this. Catholics believe that too, of course. But if your perception is we have to work out our salvation, and there are differences between Protestants and Catholics, but, okay, I'm earning my salvation somehow. And then there's the idea that, actually, no, God predestines who's going to be saved before the foundation of the world, and it's totally an act of God's grace. You have nothing to do with it. You literally have nothing to do with whether you are the elect or not. It's God's sovereign choice. And so you can see why grace became pushed way over here, right? We have, there, there's, we're saved by faith and, and God's grace, but we also contribute by, our, our, by doing good works. And then you get way over here to where, actually, no, God predestined you before the foundation of the world. You've you got nothing to do with it. And you are eternally secure. There's nothing you could ever do to change God's mind. I mean, that's comforting in some ways, if you're the elect, but, but you, do you see how the, the chasm widened and widened? Sola Christus, Christ alone. Nobody's going to argue with this. We're Christians. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. But they meant not the Pope, not priests, not the sacraments. It was a reaction against their experience of Catholicism that we worship Jesus alone. And of course, who grew up Catholic here? Do Catholics worship Jesus? Of course. Of course. But you see how the chasm widened and widened. And then uh, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. We live for the glory of God alone. We don't, we don't venerate the saints. 
Protestants don't venerate the saints or pray, saints or pray through the saints. We, we just hold up the glory of God alone. So Protestants left the Catholic Church because they, they didn't believe the Catholics believe in the five solas. And, and Catholics do, with some tweaks, there are differences, but it's just that that relationship, was, the, the breakup was so bad that you have one side way over here and the other side way over here. One of the, one of the advantages of a series like this is we can just learn and understand and just come a little closer. I'm not going to become Catholic. You know, Catholics, you don't have to become Protestants. It's just maybe we can come a little closer and, and just work towards reconciliation and understand each other a little bit. So just practically how this worked out, and we'll, we'll move on here. For Luther, Luther felt like he was never good enough for God. He would uh, self-flagellate. <laughs> you know what that means? He would hurt himself, harm himself, to absolve himself of his sins. He, he always felt unworthy. He felt like a spiritual failure. He thought that if he harmed himself physically, that would purify him in God's eyes. That if he hurt himself enough, that, that somehow he would pay for his sins and God would love him and accept him. And he, he was miserable as a monk until he taught a class on Romans and his life was changed forever when he had this epiphany. Reading Romans chapter 1 verse 17. For the gospel, for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And so he called this justification by faith. We're made righteous by God. We don't have to earn God's righteousness. We don't have to earn God's love. God gives us faith and looks at us as righteous, and God accepts us. And Romans 5 sheds more light on what changed Luther's heart. Uh, Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We don't have to do things to earn God's love or to earn our salvation. God loves us first, and then we love God back. We want to do good works because we're responding to God's love for us, and grace produces joy and, and hope, and that's our boast. Not that we earned our salvation, but we boast in God's grace and in and, and God's glory, and that's what changed his life, and, and, and that's what he meant by faith alone and, and Grace alone. Now, of course, Catholics believe we're saved by faith in Jesus. But you see how a, a guy's personal experience, coupled with, yes, some theological differences, contributed to the Protestant Reformation, but then once again, the rift is so wide that it's hard to even communicate. Now, Catholics would define justification as more of a process that involves good, good uh, works and, and and there are differences, but you can see how Luther's own spiritual journey influenced the Protestant Reformation. Any of you ever felt like Martin Luther? Just not good enough? Can't earn God's favor? The guilt never goes away? Maybe if I hurt myself, God will love me? Maybe if I'm in a toxic relationship, I'm worthy of love? You see how all these things play into whether it's the Reformation or whether it's marriage. And his, his experience influenced the world. So what can we learn? What, how can we grow from Lutherans and Presbyterians? Well, when you do away with the authority of the Pope, then what's your authority? The, the Reformers made the Bible their authority uh, for faith and life. 
One of the things that we can, that we can take from the Protestant Reformation is that thinking people can take the Bible seriously. We say that all the time here. That, that the Bible rightly interpreted in the light of its historical context is something that smart people who are culturally aware and use iPhones can take seriously. You don't have to be dumb to take the Bible seriously. Intelligent, thinking, compassionate people can take the Bible seriously. Now, that's been pushed to the extremes by some Protestants who say things about the Bible that the Bible doesn't even say about the Bible and make it essentially God, the paper, you know, the paper Pope. But, but we, can, we can read the Bible and we can allow it to guide our lives. And like we said last week, allow the Bible to be the primary authority for our faith and practice. I preach sermons from the Bible. And, and, and we can read it devotionally. And we have connect groups here where we study books and we, we talk about the Bible and, and how it can be a guide. And we want to interpret it rightly. So thinking people can take the Bible seriously. A second thing that we could take from the Protestant Reformation is something called the priesthood of believers. Because they were reacting against the Catholic Church. We don't have, we don't have Catholic priests anymore. In, in our religion, so instead, all, all of us are priests, called by God to be priests. The priesthood of all believers. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a priest. And that comes from First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 9 in the New Testament. It says It's not on the screen, but I'll read it. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, all of you, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The word priest comes from the Latin pontifex. Like the Pope is the supreme pontiff, the high priest. Pontifex means bridge builder. That's interesting, isn't it? That's the meaning of a priest. A bridge builder. So a priest builds a bridge between people and the divine. Or between people and other people. In community, in reconciling all things to God. That's what a priest is. And so in the Protestant Reformation, there's the belief in the priesthood of all believers that you are a priest. You are a bridge builder between other people and God. That the way you live your life, the way you talk, the way you love people, the, way, the things that you engage in, from the tech ministry to the coffee bar, to, the, right, to music, to, to kids, and, and then think, the way you are at work or at home or in your community and volunteering, you can be a priest. You can help connect people to God. You can help people experience God's grace and joy and, and hope that we read about in, in Romans 5 and God's acceptance that we are all called to be bridge builders and priests. We need that in our world, don't we? So that, that's something that we can learn. It's something that how we can grow from Lutherans and Presbyterians. And then here's my last point. We'll park here for a couple of minutes before we wrap it up. We can live in the realization of God's grace. Live with God's grace being real to us. What, how can I feel God's grace and God's love for me so that I don't have to suffer in misery like Martin Luther did early in his life? Feeling unloved and never good enough? Feeling rejected? Of course, we know many of those feelings will come from our family of origin, even childhood experiences. And, and then later in life, the way that we interact with people and the way that you get treated in high school, those things stick with you. It's true. It's not foo-foo. You know, psychobabble. It's true. And, and, and so we, how can we be able to realize that God's grace becomes real to us? 
What would it feel like if God's grace and love acceptance were real to you? That, that you don't have this feeling of God doesn't approve of me or I, I feel uncomfortable in church because I feel like I'm not good enough or I have this guilt that I carry around and it just won't go away. What would it feel like to you if God's grace became real to you? And then, of course, how would that affect relationships we were talking about earlier? If I feel God's grace and I feel accepted and loved as I am, I don't have to whip myself like Martin Luther did to try to earn somebody's love, but I just feel accepted and loved as I am, how would that affect these, con- these relational conflicts and, and the marriage and the work politics and, and the, the church arguments? And So back in, in 2007 or so, something like that, I lived here for two years from 05 to 07, and then the Great Recession happened. I moved back to Ohio for five years, and my wife and I came here in 2012. And so I played basketball on Sunday nights with a group of friends at a church right off the 60 in, in Gilbert. And um, it was a normal, at that time, 30-something basketball pickup game. And, and everybody had a little bit of blubber. We were all carrying around, you know, doing our best. None of us were NBA players, exactly. And, and a couple of us played in high school, and, and you just kind of hope that you're on the shirts and not the skins, because you don't, you know, things don't look the way they used to. And, and so we used to, you know, just have a good time trying to play basketball, just kind of average guys. And, and one week, this guy showed up who was about 6'4", and very athletic build, and his name was Eric. Hey, Eric, good to meet you, man. I'm thinking this guy can probably play. You know, I want him on my team, like when you're picking teams before the, before the game. And, and only a couple of guys knew him, and, and so, you know, they invited him. We shot free throws to determine who's on what team, actually. And so, and so the first five guys to make a free throw, they're on one team, which seems like kind of a bad way to be competitive. It's a bad way of choosing teams. And, and so all the bad shooters are on the second team. Like, this probably isn't going well. And, and so we started playing. Of course, Eric made his free throw. We started playing. You know, Eric takes a, it might have been a three or it's a long jumper, string music, you know, swish. And, and, and so I'm like, all right, it's a good shot. And so uh, the next time he brings the ball down the, down the floor as a guard, he's a great dribbler. Like, this guy's just got total control of the ball. He passes off to somebody. They pass it back with perfect agility and coordination. He, he puts the ball on the floor, cuts through three guys, lays it up above the rim, could have dunked it, didn't, you know, for some reason, but he lays the ball in. And I'm thinking, okay, no, nobody else here can do that. That's pretty cool. Great. And so the next time he hits a three, and, and I'm thinking, man, this, okay, this guy's really, really good. I don't know, maybe some of you are athletes like this, but I hadn't played with anybody like this before. This level of an athlete, like I rarely have seen that. Somebody with that level of coordination and body control and who's just that great. I don't think he missed a shot. It was total domination. Like I felt like he could beat five of us on his own. What is going on with Eric? And so he came back a couple more weeks and he's just this humble guy. I know he was in seminary here in Phoenix studying uh, to, to, you know, to go into ministry and and, and he's just killing us. You know, I know he had been in Europe recently, and that's all we knew. So about three weeks in, another friend of his came. And, and we were talking, and Eric had just, you know, destroyed everybody. And I said, what is his story? Who is this dude? And he's like, oh, you don't know? 
And, and you may or may not have heard of him, but I don't know who he is now. His, so his name's Eric Channing. He's the all-time leading scorer for New Mexico State University. He played for the Aggies, uh, took him to the NCAA tournament in 1999. I have like a, a screenshot of their Hall of Fame website. There he is. Eric, I know you can't see it very well. Class of 2002, all-time leading scorer in the history of New Mexico State men's basketball, 1,862 points. Selected to the New Mexico State's all-century team in 2007. A three-time Verizon academic All-American. Led New Mexico State to the NCAA tournament in 1999. Played professional basketball in Europe. Oh, that's what he was doing in Europe. Okay. Following his basketball career, pursued a career in ministry. He played for Lou Henson for New Mexico State. And the thing I took away from that was he never said anything to anybody about that. He destroyed us and made us look like fools, but he was super nice about it. He didn't brag. He didn't need to, but he didn't. I mean, this guy's, this guy's a stud. Didn't, didn't brag about it. Totally humble guy. I think he's a pastor in Illinois now. And I think about, you know, from the Reformation to our relational issues all, all of us have and God's grace towards us and then the way that we allow God's grace to spill out of our lives and into all of our relationships. And I think about Eric. A little humbleness goes a long way. You know, not, not bragging. Not pretending that, that we've got it all together. We've got the one side. We're, you know, our side's true. And, it, and that rift just grows and grows and grows and spirals out of control. Maybe we don't know everything. Maybe we can listen to and Eric's just a good reminder to me of what humbleness and grace looks like. And so the Reformation might have been more peaceful, a little more peaceful, if both sides had remembered why they valued each other instead of just demonizing each other. There were things that needed to be corrected. There were great things that came out of the Protestant Reformation. I'm a Protestant. That's, we're a Protestant church. Great things came out of it. There were injustices that needed to be brought to light. And at the same time, it spiraled out of control and the rift became wider than it needed to be. And it's a reminder to all of us that that can happen in any relationship. This isn't just about, you know, church history class. This is life. And we can learn lessons from our ancestors, the family tree, that apply to our faith and spiritual lives, but yes, even our relational stuff that we all deal with today. So... I'll say this in closing. We've got the Suns on tonight, 7 p.m. At some point during the game, there's going to be an instant replay where the action happened fast and, and on TV now. We're going to take a look at that play in slow motion. We're going to replay what happened. It's been said the family that prays together stays together. Perhaps the family that replays together stays together. The, you like that? I heard that. Oh, I like that. That's like, that's like crack cocaine to a preacher, by the way, to hear those little noises. Like, oh, amen. I'm like, yes, I got them. Maybe, maybe the coworkers, the friends that, that replay together. Now, of course, there are things that need to be addressed. I'm not talking about abuse. But replays together. Why is our relationship important? Why do we care about each other so much? What drew us together? What do we have in common? We want to follow Jesus, if you think about the Protestant Reformation. And replaying why we care about each other so much. Maybe the people who replay together stay together. Maybe something to think about during the Suns game tonight. Let's pray. God, thank you for how you have worked in history.
and, and how we all hear your voice through our own cultural assumptions and understandings, and we all have our own, um, we all have our own things that we bring to the table, or I guess our own lenses that we look through to see everything. And that's where our side comes from, and that's fine, of course. And at the same time, one of the things we, we can learn, even in the Reformation of Lutherans and Presbyterians, there are changes that needed to take place. And Lutherans and Presbyterians, they're a great church that have influenced the world for good. And we just see how in the Reformation, things spiraled out of control. Changes needed to be made. It's just that the rift became so wide. And it reminds us of lots of family relationships, marriages, friendships, office relationships, where instead of just talking and dealing one-on-one, wherever we can and working it out we go to our own side we build alliances we get our side out there and then we just become farther and farther and farther apart and it doesn't even resemble reality anymore we don't even understand each other anymore we don't even have accurate pictures of who we are anymore and there's so much to overcome for, for people who feel like they're in that situation there are great counselors I'm always glad to refer people to counselors who can help to to pick all that apart and determine, okay, where did it start to go wrong? And we can, we can replay together why we're important to each other, why we wanted to be close in the first place, what united us in the first place. Where, where possible, it's not always possible. We don't demonize people who, who have to set boundaries and end relationships that are so toxic or abusive that it just, they can't go on. We don't demonize people who do that. There are times that's the healthy choice. There are also times where, like in the Reformation, the rift becomes wider than it needs to be. And for all of us, really the key is having your grace become real to us. Like for Martin Luther, that you love us as we are. There's a Presbyterian pastor, Richard Halverson, who says, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. God's love is unconditional, impartial, everlasting, infinite, and perfect. And if by faith I can receive your grace, your love for me, we can do that then we feel different. We don't feel unworthy. We don't feel unloved. We, we don't even feel like we need to go choose sides. We can feel secure. We can feel, we can feel accepted. We can feel like we're in a solid place and centered and I don't have to be a part of the drama. I believe you love me and I can love other people. You give me grace and I can give other people grace. And I can grow into maturity. Thank you, God, for healing. Thank you how we can grow from learning about the family tree. And we celebrate these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.